Verse 8. Now at that time, certain Chaldeans, remember Chaldeans is another word for Babylonians. It typically refers to the ruling class or the authoritative figures, came forward and brought malicious accusations against the Jews. Now this is one of the first times the word Jew is ever used in the Bible. It is briefly used in Jeremiah a couple of times, so technically Jeremiah is the first historical use of it in the Bible. It is used here in the book of Daniel, and it's going to be used in Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. But these are really the only First Testament books that the word Jew is used in. Now, I kind of explained this like way, way, way back in the day when we were going through the book of Genesis, but I'll do it again because it's been a long time and not everybody was there. But there are about three titles or three descriptions or names that are used of the Israelite people throughout the First Testament. One is the Israelites, the other one is the Hebrews, and the other one is the Jews. The word Israelite is the word that is the most often used throughout the First Testament. It's the word that they use of themselves. It's the word that other people use of them. It's the word that the narrator uses because they are truly the Israelites, the people of Israel. That's the most common. The Hebrews is a free, um, more frequently used than the word Jew in the First Testament, but very rare compared to Israelite. The word Hebrew seems to be a derogatory term, not like a cuss word kind of a thing, but just a you're lesser inferior to us kind of a term. It's the word that high officials like Pharaoh of Egypt during the Exodus or Pharaoh who was ruling over or had Joseph appointed to high status or Abimelech who Abraham encountered or um, the Philistine king Achish. It's the word that they use of any Semitic group people. The Jews were, the Israelites were not the only Semitic group there. The Canaanites, the Jebusites, the, um, all throughout the north, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, they were all Semitic people. And it's the word that they use to describe them. And so it's an inferior, oh, you're lesser than us. And, and you're, you only exist to serve us and pay taxes. And that's the word that they use to describe them. Now, it wasn't uncommon for Joseph or Moses to also call themselves a Hebrew when they were in the presence of those kind of people. And so they would call themselves a Hebrew in a, I'm inferior to you and this is the way that you, you, you view us as we call that as I stand in your presence. But you'll never see a Jew referring to themselves as that when no foreigner is around, and you never see any Jew refer to any other Jew by that name, Hebrew. The other word is Jew, and this doesn't really start showing up until the exile. We don't know exactly when, but somewhere in the exile, the word Jew is starting to be used. And specifically, it's a shortened, Anglicized, or an English transliteration version of the word Yehuda. Yehuda is the word Judah. So there were 12 tribes, remember, and Judah, Yehuda, because there are no J's in Hebrew. They're all Y's, but when the Germans came along, their J's are pronounced like a Y, and they translate these things into it, and that's why it's Jacob instead of Jacob, and Jerusalem, or Jerusalem instead of Jerusalem. Those J's were modified by the Germans when they translated things. And so this is an Anglicized version of the word Judah or Judah. And the reason that this becomes this way is that, remember, Israel split into two kingdoms after Solomon. And the northern half became the ten tribes of the north Israel, and Judah became the one in the south. And Israel was carried away by the Assyrians in 722, and all that was left behind was Judah. 
And Judah, the Israel in the north, were largely massacred. Very few people from Israel survived the captivity because they so were so evil and so did not repent. All the righteous people from the ten tribes began to move to the south in Judah. So that by the time the Babylonians came, Judah was full of all the tribes, the godly people. And Judah had more instances of repenting than the north did. So that when the Babylonians came, there were many Judaites who were sinful and deserved to die, but there were many who were repentant and just allowed themselves to be taken in obedience to God. They largely survived the exile. And because they were from the region of Judah, and all of Israel in the north was gone and dead pretty much, they started becoming known as Judah. And they were all known as Judaites, not just the ethnic descendants of Judah, but everyone who lived there because they became known as the city-state of Judah. And then after the exile, or during the exile, many of the poor people were left behind in Judah, and so they were called the Judaites. And then when they returned back, which we'll go through in Ezra and Nehemiah, they returned back to Judah, but they did not occupy any land outside of Judah. And so they were continued to be called the Judaites. And so the word Jew became a shortened version of Judaites, and it's a more English pronunciation of it. So that's where that word Jew comes from. And that is carried over today. Most of the people around now are called Jews. Today, we also use the word Israeli. And the word Israeli is used of the people of Israel who moved back to Israel after the British Mandate of 1948, where England gave Israel back their land after the Holocaust. But to people today do not like being called Israelites. They do not want to be called Israelites. They're either Israeli because they live in Israel, or they're Jews because they're ethnic descendants of Abraham. And that's typically how they refer today. So this is uniquely an exilic, post-exilic term that is used of them. From this point on, you're not really going to see the word Israelite used anymore in the Bible. And when the Gospels come along, it's always the Jews. Always the Jews. And so this is a time where they're specifically singled out as the people who came from Judah. That's who they're known as. I know that was a really long description to get to that point, but hopefully that was helpful. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued an edict, O king, that everyone must bow down and pay homage to the golden statue. When they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zyre, trigon, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, and whoever does not bow down, pay homage, must be thrown into the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire. But there are Jewish men whom you appointed over the administration of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men have not shown proper respect to you, O king. They don't serve your gods. They don't pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. So it's not just enough to say they're not bowing down. We have to list all their other sins that we don't like in addition to that. Oh, by the way, there's other reason we should be burning them alive. They don't honor you. They don't worship your gods. And there might be a little bit like they're snubbing you. Like, look at all the amazing things that you've done for them, Nebuchadnezzar. You appointed them. And they thumb their nose at you and just disrespect you. They should be burned. Now notice that Nebuchadnezzar is not the one who notices them. He's not the one who's looking out. Most likely he just, he's just basking in all the glory and eating his grapes and drinking his wine, right? He's not noticing this. It is his magistrates his little Nazis who are looking at the crowd trying to find the people who don't do this. 
Now, the all, there's only one motivation to rat people out. Okay, now, this is what I tell my daughters. There's nothing wrong with pointing out sin. Like if some kid at school is doing something bad and they're unloving to God or they're unloving to other people, heck yes, you go tell a teacher. And the teacher tells you you're tattletaling, you tell them dad says they're wrong. Okay, <laughs> in a polite way. Okay, <laughs> we are called by the Bible never ever to turn a blind eye to sin and evil. And if people at school or in your work are being hurt, then they need to be called out. I mean, right? If you don't report a murder, you get prosecuted, right? What's the motivation? That's the key. If your motivation is like, oh, I'm going to so get you in trouble. Like, mom, you know what Cassie's doing right now? Like, that's evil. The heart motivation is wrong. But if your motivation is, this person's being hurt, and this is going to hurt their life, and we need to protect them. And I need to call this out and stop it. Or I love you so much as a brother or sister in Christ. I need to call you out on this because you're destroying your life. And I don't want to see that. And I remember one of my friends once saying to another friend, I had a friend that was doing some things that he shouldn't have been doing. And he was calling him out. And he said, this is really uncomfortable to call you out. And I know there's a really good chance that you're going to not going to be my friend anymore. And I know you're going to probably walk away from me. And I love this friendship a lot. But they said this to him. But I love you and your life more than I love our friendship. And I'm willing to sacrifice our friendship to do the right thing that hopefully maybe when I correct you, you'll repent and change things. Rather than me living and watching you destroy your life and always wondering if I had said something, would you be different now? And that alone was actually more convicting to my friend than him being called out on his sin. And there's a certain sense here where they're not calling it out because they actually care about the right thing. When you get into higher up powers like this, most of the time things are being called out because I will rise up in the ranks further. And this is a, I want to find the people who are doing the wrong thing because I will look really good and I will get promotions. And that motivation for calling out sin is wholly selfish and not at all what God meant by if you see your neighbor sinning, then go confront them. What God called you to do there was because you value them more than the way that they view you. And so we're called to call our brothers and sisters out, but not for job promotions. Everything here is corrupted. Everything is here is corrupted. And they're looking on the audience trying to find so they can look good. And everything here is about power. And this is the thing. They're willing to destroy lives for the sake of power. Because when you begin to self-deify, or you follow the one who's deifying itself, life no longer is sacred. If you are in positions of power and influence... I remember people telling me this line. I've never arrived to a power position influence, but I remember wise advisors in my life telling us, make sure that you bring people with you, up with you, who've known you before you had power and are willing to get in your face and call you out no matter what, that they actually value you more than their promotions. And unfortunately, that's hard to find as you keep rising higher and higher and higher. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have that. However, he does. 
Who are the ones that he can trust more than anything to call him out on things? Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he has become so blind and corrupt that he's now willing to throw those people into the fire. And they're like, hey, you said it. Now you have to follow through. It's like parenting 101. But there are Jewish men that you appointed, and they're not doing this. Oh, king, they don't serve your gods, and they don't pay homage to the golden statue that you've erected. Verse 13, the Nebuchadnezzar, in a fit of rage, demanded they bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him. I knew I never wanted to be a psychologist for a living, but I really enjoy psychology is just reading and learning about it. I remember reading the psychologist once who did this study on all these dictators like um, Pablo Escobar and, and Fidel Castro and all this kind of stuff and basically said that really in the end they were just overgrown little children with low self-esteem. And because the difference is, remember we talked about that with Samson, the reason that God puts people, um, kids in little bodies is when they throw tantrums, people don't die. But when you have a grown man who has the Holy Spirit come upon him in power and he throws a tantrum, like Samson, everybody begins to die. That's what a lot of dictators are. They're just like kids that have never really grown up. They still have low self-esteem and they're trying to make them feel good with power and control. But when things don't go their way, they throw tantrums. And unfortunately, especially today with guns, lots of people die around them. That's why they say don't shoot the messenger because kings would often lash out in anger and kill the closest person to them and they would die. And that's what you see with Nebuchadnezzar. Seriously, out of the thousands upon thousands of people in the stadium, so to speak, who were bowing down to you and these people over there that you didn't even know us and that's enough to get you enraged and to lose it. So they brought them before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods and that you don't pay homage to the golden statue that I erected. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zyre, the trigon, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, you must bow down and pay homage to the statue that I made. If you don't pay homage to it, you will be immediately be thrown into the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire. Now, who is that God that you can, who is that God that can rescue from my power? Once again, notice the repetition. This is just ridiculously repeated over and over and over again. Now, notice he's giving him a chance. And we don't know why. Is he giving him a chance because he knows the kind of people that are ratting them out and that they are not trustworthy? Or is he giving them a chance because he really likes them and he doesn't want them to die? We don't know. But what's also interesting, he's like, is it true that you don't worship my gods? Yeah, we kind of made that clear for the last two chapters. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, like, do you forget us? But he's going to give them another chance to bow down. Now, now, here, now we definitely have Pavel's dog. This is like the wave that just never stops in this stadium. You're like, I just want to eat my hot dog and watch the game. These people are going to have to stand up again and sit down again. Like, how many times? Like, oh my gosh, we've already done it. How many times are we going to do this? This is just totally ridiculous. So he gives them another chance. And he says, who is the God that can rescue you from my power? That's arrogance. I have elevated myself so high, there is no God who can go against me. Now remember, all these stories are about Yahweh being more supreme than any of the other gods. And of course, the minute you say something like that, it's like, uh, something's going to happen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you a reply concerning this. If our God, whom we serve, exists, he is able to rescue us from the furnace of the blazing fire, 
and he will rescue us, O king, from your power as well. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we don't serve your gods, and we will not pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. The Hebrew literally says, If our God, whom we serve, exists, he is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace and from your hand, O king. He will deliver. The Hebrew literally says, if our God exists, then he is able to do it. This has like led to so many scholars like, what is going on with this statement? That's not something you expect these men to say. Some have suggested that maybe after Yahweh not actually protecting them when they got kidnapped and carried off, and many, 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 many Jews were questioning whether Yahweh was still with them or not because they were carrying off into exile and God didn't protect them. It's possible that they maybe are doubting the existence of God. And that wouldn't be surprising. I mean, that's very human, right? The problem is that doesn't seem to fit the context, though. One, no one in the ancient world doubted the existence of gods. No Jew would ever doubt whether Yahweh existed back then. Everybody believed the gods existed. Nebuchadnezzar believes that their God is real. There's no such thing as an atheist in the ancient world. I know there's that passage in Proverbs where people, it says, the fool says that there is no God. And they're like, oh, there's atheists back there, right? And that's not what it means. What it means is that the fool lives as if the gods won't hold them accountable or that God will not hold them accountable, that he's not paying attention. The question was never whether they existed. The question was how involved are they in your lives? And in that sense, many people doubted the involvement of the gods on a regular basis. And one could even begin to doubt whether Yahweh was involved in their lives after they got carried away. So contextually, historically speaking, it does not make sense for them to say, if our God exists. No Jew would think that way. No ancient person would think that way. Most likely, it's an argument based on Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said, who is the God? As in, what God exists that can stop me? And they're responding for the sake of argument. If our God exists, then he'll prove it. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar has presented a philosophical premise. There is no God who can stop him. He's never questioned the existence of God. He's questioned the God who can stop him. They're responding to that philosophical question with the statement, if there is a God that can stop you, we're confident that he will. And it's not, it's like saying, talking to an atheist, and you're trying to argue something, and you say, okay, if there is a God, wouldn't we expect God to do this kind of stuff? And if there is a God, wouldn't we expect him to do that? Nor are you really saying, I believe there's no God, and I'm questioning it. You're saying that if for the sake of an argument, right? You're putting yourself on their level. And that is most likely what's going on here, because... Here's the context that fits it even better. It is very unlikely that you're going to wonder whether God exists and stand up before the king and ready to die. <laughs> Culturally speaking, this statement is not saying that God doesn't exist. Contextually, in a statement of argument, it seems more likely they're arguing philosophically with Nebuchadnezzar. And practically and circumstantially speaking, you don't stand up and say, I think there is a God, but I'm still going to stand against you and I know you're going to kill me, but I'm not completely sure if God exists. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. You are willing to stand up and be burned alive 
because you're absolutely confident that your God is real. They're not arguing that whether God exists. This is the beauty of their statement. This is one of the most powerful statements of faith that I think we should make our mantra. And this is what it is. They're saying this. The implication that is being stated is, we know that our God is capable of saving us. But if not, we still will not bow down and worship you. That but if not are three of the most powerful words of faith. They are so committed to Yahweh and they so know who he is that they know he's capable of doing anything and that there is nothing that he cannot overcome. And they know that Yahweh is completely capable of saving them. They've seen it in their own life. Maybe not miraculously like this. Because remember, a lot of people read this story and they, they assume, oh, they knew it was a miracle was coming, right? Because the Bible is full of miracles. And of course God does miracles in the Bible, but he doesn't do that for us today. When have we seen the parting of Red Sea? Or people sitting in front of the fiery furnace? Or saved from the, the lion's den? Or, or whatever, right? We get to understand too. Think about how much of the Bible does not have miracles in it. I mean, the whole 400 years that they're in slavery in Egypt, how many miracles did they see? None. Not, and what I mean by miracles, there, there are miracles. God is still doing miracles. I've seen miracles multiple times in my life. I've seen, I mean, like the Hollywood miracles, the big showy ones that drastically change the cosmos. Those are the ones that we always want as Christians, right? Like make this person not die of bullets. Those are the ones that we really want. But we miss the little ones, the everyday relationship miracles that God is doing. And so we think, oh, but you have to think about how many years they haven't seen that. And think about it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have not seen a Hollywood miracle. God did not miraculously stop the Babylonians when they came into their village. God did not miraculously protect them from a refugee camp or their, their, their families from being massacred. They have never seen in their own life a giant cosmic bending miracle in the way that we think of miracles. But they have seen many little miracles when God answered their prayer and gave them the interpretation of the dream and allowed them to survive Nebuchadnezzar from killing them. They have seen the miracles where a diet that shouldn't have made them healthier actually did, and they stood out. They have seen little miracles where God has been taking care of them. And that is said to them that God is capable. But they don't serve God because he's a jackpot machine. And they don't serve God because he's a genie in the bottle. They serve God because of who he is. And they say, we know he's capable of doing anything, but even if he chooses not to spit out the jackpot for us because we demanded the handle to be pulled, and even if our lives end up in a tragic circumstances, just like people before us, we still will not serve you. And that's a powerful statement of faith that our faith is not based on what God does for us. Our faith is based on who God is and our relationship with that God. And that's the maturity of faith. Think about when you first became a Christian, most of us became a Christian because we were motivated by selfishness. We didn't want to go to hell. We didn't want to have the tragic life that we are currently living in. Right? We wanted to be rescued from our bad decisions or this horrible circumstance or the, the hell that might come or whatever. And there were maybe genuine things in there, but nobody altruistically 100% said, I'm going to follow God because I want to give my entire life to following him and serving him with no benefit whatsoever. 
Yet, as the Holy Spirit entered in us and begins to sanctify us and change us, the hope is that I'm serving God more today than yesterday because I really love him. And that's the right thing to do. And not just because I want to escape hell or I want the benefits and blessings of God. Now, the benefits and blessings of God are definitely something that God promised us. And they definitely speak to his character. If God never, ever blesses us ever, that's not a good God. But at the same time, that can tempt us into following him and obeying him only because he's doing good things for us. And that's the fickle nature of being humans. And only with a relationship with God can we move past wanting the blessings for obedience and move right into obedience because of who he is and what I have with him. The greatest blessing is knowing him. And this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their faith has come to a point that even if they are robbed of everything in this world, they are going to stay committed to him because the true blessing is knowing God and being in a relationship with him. Even if he doesn't rescue us, we will not bow down. And that's the faith that I pray for, that when those moments come, we can act upon it. And that's the faith that can only grow by constantly being in the word of God and being involved in the testimonies of the believers around us. The more and more you're in the word of God, the more you get to know him. And the more you fall in love with him and the more you realize who he is. And the more and more you surround yourself with the testimonies of believers around you. Not the testimony of how I became a Christian, but the testimony of how he's getting me through cancer, how he's getting me through my job loss, how he's getting me through my depression, how he's getting me through my struggling marriage, how he's my boss or whatever. Those testimonies. The more we hear those, the more we speak those out loud, then not only do we see the God actively evolved here, but we see him actively evolved in our lives now. And that's a relationship. And the more you grow that, the Bible and testimonies, the stories of God in our lives, the more deeply you will be transformed into a human who loves God and serves him because of who he is and not because of what he does for you. I really truly believe that we need more testimonies in our worship services. Now granted, I know it's a double-edged sword because not everybody's willing to get up and talk in front of everybody all the time, so it's hard to recruit that. But if you start doing it more often, people might see that this is what we do, and they will become more brave. And it will grow our faith as a community even more. This is the message of Deuteronomy. Over and over and over again, Deuteronomy says, remember, remember, remember. Tell your kids about this. Tell your kids about this. Over and over and over again. And this is what they're doing. 